for listening to Kickback. And I know that's very surprising. Yo, welcome back to another episode of The Kickback. I know it's been a while, but I've been waiting to get this first guest of the year on. She's been ducking me, but it's fine. We are here now. This woman needs no introduction, but some would say that she is the sister to arguably the greatest brother in history. Introducing Dr. Sharice Taylor. <laughs> hello, 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 everyone. <laughs> it is me, the favorite sibling, the confidant, the best friend, Sharice Taylor. For those of you who don't know, Sharice is my sister. So when I say that she has arguably the best brother ever, that's me. You're welcome okay, for being okay. your brother for the last 34 years. Thank you for taking away my joy and solitude and making me share things. Thanks. A fan. Life before me wasn't that great. <laughs> let's, let's be real. What did you have? Nothing. I had everything. You were everything. alone. A loner. I was living my truth. Operating in my power, getting everything I wanted. Yes, your four-year-old truth. You go ahead. (laughs) Please, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I am the oldest sister and only sister to this man right here. Um, I also... Yeah, okay. I'm also an assistant superintendent in a school district. Um, in Massachusetts, I do a lot of work in consulting as well on transformational leadership, um, social emotional learning, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion work. Um, I'm basically a strategist. Think of me as the Olivia Pope of education. You got a problem, I help you fix it. Mm, the Olivia Pope of education. What, what made you want to get into education? Um, so, really, it was looking at and reflecting on my educational experience compared to my brother's educational experience. So um, of our mom's children, three of us, uh, we all went to different kinds of schools. So I very early on, because I'm the smartest of the bunch, um, tested- Allegedly. Yeah, okay. Tested into a bunch of gifted schools. And essentially my entire life, I've been in gifted education um, and in independent schools. So um, I have two Ivy League degrees, I've always been in gifted classes. Um, My approach to learning has just always been different. And when I got older, um, we have another sibling who had a really, really hard time in public school. And I just wondered like, what was, he's just as smart as I am. Well, you know, almost as smart as I am. (laughs) And then, (laughs) right. And then, you know, there's CJ who's almost as smart as I am. He's close, right? Almost. Almost, almost, almost. No. Child, child, please. You, you go ahead. I'm gonna let you shine tonight. With age comes wisdom. Thank you very much. Mm, yeah. yeah, you old. Oh, really? That's what we oh, want. Oh, you choosing well, you, violence tonight? You, you wanted to talk all about tonight? your solitude, right? Really? Your years. Wow. Your years of solitude. I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna pray for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just got really curious about why were our educational experiences different, given that we all grew up in the same house. Um, and what did what did we need in each of our classrooms to have us be successful? So that led me to doing counseling, to becoming a social worker, to um, working in New York City on 
pilot programs and strategic initiatives around school improvement. Um, and it's just really put me on the journey that I'm on. You know, I've always just, you know, my brothers and I are so different. We grew up in the same place and we need different things. And I take that same wondering to schools, right? Like how do we build schools that meet children where they are individually, um, meet their needs academically, meet their social emotional needs, um, and also, you know, have them be the citizens that they want to be in the world. That's good. You know, I feel like our household is the perfect reason as to why I believe that blanket policies don't work. Mm -hmm. Because you're right, the three of us were raised in the same household, mm -hmm. uh, seeming access to a lot of the same things, and yet we are so different. Mm -hmm. You were the academic star. Our brother was the academic problem child. And as I am in life, I just existed. I, I was neither too good nor too bad. I was just there, you know, classic middle child syndrome. Uh, so you went into education for that reason. Did you have to get a PhD or did you feel like that was something you just you really wanted to do? Um, well, it's a funny story. So our mom has been saying since I was born that I was gonna be Dr. Taylor. Um, and I, you know, as a kid, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm going to be Taylor, great. And then- It would have been nice if she spoke some of that positivity over me, but uh, you go you, ahead. I mean, you know, mommy also believes in women empowerment and I'm the only girl, so, you know. Blah, blah, blah. Right? It's all right. You have daughters. Wait till you see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the idea was in my head, uh, but after I finished my master's program, I was just like, I'm done. I got all the education I need. I'm good. And then, um, well, literally in August 2016, I was at home recovering from gallbladder surgery, had to have my gallbladder removed. And I just felt like a really strong like push from God to say like, it's time to apply for a PhD. And so my conversation with God literally went like this. I don't need a PhD to do the job that I'm doing. I'm being paid well no one else around me in that in my workplace has a PhD and everybody's fine. Um, and I got student loans. So unless this program is free, I can't do it. And so I knew there was a program at CUNY. I was like, oh, I'll apply to it. Let me, you know, see what happens. And God just kept saying Harvard. And I was just like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, that program was also free. So um, I just felt the push. Um, I didn't. And I, enrolled. I remember it was like August 20 something. I enrolled in a GRE class on like that Monday, like that Saturday started my first class on Monday and then did the prep class, did the class applied. I didn't tell anyone that I applied until after I applied. And the only people I told were my mom and our two siblings, CJ and our other sibling. So I didn't tell anyone. Uh, two months later, I got an email saying that I'm invited to interview. Um, and then I still didn't tell anyone. And then when I got in, I essentially just posted on social media, I'm going to Harvard. So that was really the process. It was a big shock to everyone in our community uh, because I wasn't talking about getting a doctorate with anyone. I wasn't talking about you know pursuing anything else. I just did it. Was Harvard the only school you applied to? Two. I applied to the CUNY program and the Harvard program. And funny enough, I didn't get into the CUNY program, but I got into the Harvard program. Mm. Well, look at that. I was kind of like when I applied for, for grad school, 
I'm like, man, listen, I got a lot of student loans already. I'm applying to one school and one school only. If I get in, then this is for me. If not, I'm going to go on about my business. That's right. But yep. nah, that's cool. So I think we are pretty aligned in our frustrations with the American educational system. Yes. What do you think is the biggest problem? <laughs> so there isn't one big problem, right? I think that there are, it's a syndrome, right? So a syndrome is a variety of symptoms that create a maladaptive condition, right? So- You go ahead, Harvard. There you go, I heard my <laughs> Maladaptive condition. Mm. <laughs> So if you think about it, right, we have outdated teacher prep programs. We have, um, we have an education system that's built largely on property taxes in a lot of places. We, have, we don't have national standards. Every state gets to do their own thing. And then we have you know, a variety of just personal beliefs on the value of education, you know, what education means, what does education allow you to do? I mean, there's a faction of people that say, you know, everyone should go to college and college is for everyone and you will never be anything in life if you don't go to college. And then there's another faction of people who say, no, actually every kid needs to learn a marketable skill, right? So that's like our career and technical education crowd you know, so if your kid goes to what we call a CTE school, that's a school where they're learning carpentry, they're learning plumbing, they're learning cosmetology. What does CTE stand for? Career and technical education. So, you know, you're learning all those different things that upon your high school graduation, you're actually able to step into the workforce immediately. Um, in most cases, earn, you know, a minimum wage salary but at least you'll be on the pathway to earning more depending on the work that you do. I will say though, the caveat to the CTE, excuse me, to the CTE crew is that oftentimes students who go to CTE schools, they get the job initially, but in order to move up or to be in management, they have to go back to college at some point and at least earn an associate's degree. Mm. You know, it's, um... I think about like Europe, right? Where they, we look at uh, kind of those CTE jobs and we think those are valueless jobs. They are, for lack of a better term, like it's the work for dumb people. You're working with your hands. But in Europe, they take a very different approach, but they also pay people a living wage to do those jobs so they're not looked down upon. Correct. Um, I think one of my beefs with the with the education system is so its roots are in the kind of a post industrial revolution German school of thought, which was to create good employees, not good thinkers. And a That's lot right. of what we see coming out of these institutions, and as my my own kids are entering into school now, and I'm talking with friends who have kids who are older, it's you're teaching my kid how to be a good employee. You're not teaching my kid how to think for themselves. And we live in a society now, if you're, if you're paying attention, where if you do show any form of thought that is considered radical, which basically is not in step with what the, the populist view is, then you're viewed as a heretic. You're viewed as other. And, 
and all these things. And my concern is now that I'm raising kids in this world, because I think we, we had a mother who always taught us to think. Yes, absolutely. My concern as I'm raising kids in this world is like, I'm going to teach them to think, of course, but it's like, what, like, what is going on in these classrooms that it's almost like kids are being indoctrinated or they're just, it's just like, just learn this. This is the answer to that. There's no room for free, rational thought. And that's, that's kind of scary as, as I watch the, the chasms class-wise just grow and grow. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is you are saying that it's absolutely right. What I'll also say is that um, stratification or split between those who are taught to think and those who are taught to do happens as early as first grade. So there are actually classrooms normally in gifted classrooms where all the work you're doing is being taught to think. But if you, so if you're in an educational system where they start tracking kids as early as kindergarten or first grade, your entire educational trajectory is going to be shaped by the people that you have in front of you. The other thing that's difficult about our education system broadly in America is that let's talk about property taxes. Well-funded districts can afford high-performing teachers. Lower-funded districts end up getting teachers who, this is gonna sound very controversial, um, for the have one or two things, right? Because we live in a post-Obama, post-racial America. You either get the teachers who are white saviors coming into lower income communities who wanna come- Jacob in. from Abbott Elementary? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So like you get, you know, white teachers with their capes on coming to save the little poor black and brown kids. Or you get teachers who, you know, they got through their program, but they may not have been A A students in that program, right? Like they got through the teacher prep program, they got through, you know, the coursework, um, but they probably didn't go to, they may not have gone to a rigorous school. And then you have like your small amount of students who got into a rigorous school, were excellent at their craft, and decided that I'm making a commitment to urban education, whether it's because they came from an urban environment or because this is the, you know, the calling that they feel that they have. So all these adults, these different groups of adults are in front of your kids year after year. And so you could have amazing teachers. I had amazing teachers from, I would really say my entire, most of my elementary career. And when I got to my high school, I tested into a high school. It's a secondary school that goes from seventh through 12th grade. And when I got there, I had terrible math teachers, but you know, no one held them accountable. You know why? Because I was in a school full of wealthy students or upper middle-class to upper middle-class students. And all those parents had money to pay their math tutors. All those kids had math tutors. So it didn't matter who was in front of them on a day-to-day basis because parents were ensuring that their kids were getting the education that they wanted them to have. So when you have someone like me coming in, you know, our family was like, we, we've like gone up from like lower income to like lower middle class. You know, we can afford that. Our mom had three miles to feed and herself, like it just wasn't an option. And so I didn't get like a really great math teacher until 10th grade. And literally I had two periods of math every day because I had my one period with her. And then during my lunch break, I would sit with her and fill in all the gaps of things I didn't learn the years before. 
but not every teacher is willing to do that. Which is wild. Mm-hmm. Wild. Yeah, we went, to, we went to the same elementary school. And again, it's all about who's in front of you, right? Exactly. So I'm in the gifted program, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, half of third grade. Why was I in the gifted program for only half of third grade? Because and this was the problem every year. I just finished my work too fast. And if you've got a seven, eight-year-old who finished their work fast, what are they going to do? They're going to become a little chatty catty. Mm-hmm. So I'd finish my work fast. And instead of my teacher giving me more to occupy me or challenge me, she would just get mad when I started talking. So I thought I was doing a good thing. And I would bring, I was a huge wrestling fan as a kid. And yeah, I would bring wrestling magazines to school and I'd finish my work. And here's the thing, like I'd finish it fast and it was right. It's not like I finished my work really fast. I rushed through it and it was wrong. It was right. So I had nothing to do. So I would sit and read my wrestling magazines and Miss Jones got mad and she took my magazine that had the Undertaker on the cover. She was supposed to give it back at the end of the year never did. I'm not still salty about it. I'm just saying, <laughs> but ultimately she got fed up with me and then I got put in Miss Ellis's class. And uh, so I remember I'm taking, Miss Ellis. Yeah. You love Miss Ellis. I did not love Miss Ellis. Miss Ellis was mean. Which one was Miss Ellis? Oh, yes. Yep, yep. I was thinking was of Miss Palumbo. Had me. Miss Palumbo was first grade. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I get taken out of the gifted class and I'm put in with the normies. Normies are fine. I'm just saying, you know, I was I was up there, son. But, <laughs> but yeah, so so now if you think I'm bored in the gifted class, I'm I'm even more bored here. I go to the fourth grade and this, again, it's all about who's in front of you. Cause in the fourth grade, I had Miss Norton. And within the first two weeks of school, Miss Norton was like, you don't belong here. And I'm going to fight to have you put where you belong next year. And that whole year I'd finish my work fast, like always. And Miss Norton would challenge me. She would give me more work. She looked out for me. She was constantly giving me books. And I feel like having that experience in the fourth grade saved me, saved my academic career. Like I never went on to be a great student because I, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I don't know what I would have been had I not had Miss Norton to look back on because fifth grade, oh man, my teachers in junior high were awful. Mm-hmm. High school, I'm, I'm actually going to hang out with my friends from high school tomorrow. Aww. We had some pretty crummy teachers. Like, hey, Although yeah, there was just, one teacher, Miss um, Choma, was that her name? Uh, Miss Choma. Miss Choma, well, again, there are those teachers you have in your life who are lifelines. And in high school, it was Miss Choma and Miss Lowenthal, Mr. Lowenthal. Mr. Lowenthal, he, uh, what did he do? He made me join the debate team. He was my English teacher. And he's like, listen, you talk a lot. You eat in my class all the time, but you're really smart. I'm going to cut you some slack and I'm going to give you some extra credit if you join the debate team, (laughs) which ended up being one of the greatest things to ever happen to me because Mm -hmm. it was there I was able to refine my my argumentative skills. Mm -hmm. I was able to refine my rhetorical skills, which we see where I've ended up in life. That is very useful. Exactly. Uh, My research skills, my like my ability to argue, to see things rationally. Right. I, I think I see things rationally. I will argue both sides of a situation, which I actually think makes you a more empathetic person. Definitely. People who can't ever understand the other side, there, there's some sort of problem there. So that was Mr. Lowenthal, but Miss Choma. Miss Choma was that auntie. 
Yes. <laughs> she she hit me one time. Like old school <laughs> Guyanese woman. I did I had her for like five or six classes over the course of high school. And I, I said something to her. I said something one time and she just gave me a little whack. And in that moment, looked at me and was like, I know I shouldn't have done that. But you're like a, you're, you're like my nephew. <laughs> and we just kind of laughed it off. But yeah, she she was one who was constantly challenging me, constantly pushing me. Uh, she knew how much I wanted to be a writer. And when our good immigrant mother told me no, she was the one who encouraged me to major in finance. And she was my econ teacher at the time. Like she, again, was just one of those people who who invested in mm-hmm. her students or, or at least the ones she saw promising. Definitely. I remember the first time I went to one of your school performances and you dragged me all around the building with you. But the only teacher you really concerned that I met was Miss Choma. And you were like, we were like going through the hallway and I'd be like, well, who's that? Uh, they don't matter. I was like, who's that? Uh, they don't matter. Miss Choma. And you like yelling down the hall and she's like, Claude, what do you want? <laughs> yo, Miss Choma was the homie. I, yo, I cried so hard when she passed. Hmm. Man, I remember me and Courtney, she passed while I was in college. And I came home a couple of weeks later and me and Courtney spent an entire day walking around the cemetery in New Jersey trying to find her grave. Wow. Miss Elizabeth Choma. Mm. She was. Thank God for our, for the teachers who impacted us, right? Seriously. Thank God I, for them. I, I know what it's like to have my fifth grade, my fifth grade teacher, fifth grade social studies teacher. I very specifically remember her saying one time, listen, I'm getting paid either way. Y'all do what y'all want. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of teachers who have had that attitude, mm-hmm. a lot of teachers who just don't have patience. And I also understand you're trying to teach 30 kids of varying levels of acumen and desire. And there's no telling what's going on in their home lives. Like mm-hmm. my junior year, if you remember, I lived in a roach infested one bedroom apartment with seven other people. Yep. That's your most important academic year. Yep. I'm taking AP classes. I'm preparing for the SATs. I'm, how, how do you survive in that environment? How do you thrive? Mm-hmm. And I had it easy. I had it easy compared to a lot of people that I know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did you always feel like um, college was for you? Um, so the hard part for me was, again, I, I think I've always been a semi- rational person mm-hmm. and I would look back I would look around and I would say go to college I don't know a lot of people who went to college the few I know who went to college have a lot of debt and they live in the same place that I'm in and they have the same struggles that I have so why would I do this and then I've never been I've never been someone who tests well that's just me neither I don't I, I don't understand why it, for whatever reason, like we could have a conversation about the subject and mm-hmm. I will recall everything. I will sound like the world's foremost expert. You sit me down with 50 questions, multiple choice, and I just go blank. It makes mm-hmm. no sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked at college and the things like we're always told, go to college, go to college. But when you go to schools like I went to, like I went to, you know, they don't tell you what college you go to matters. It's just go. And so it's not that I felt like college wasn't for me. I just didn't see the point. And it was only as 
I kind of got out of college and started to see the trajectory that I was on and my friends who didn't go to college was on. And, I, and I'm talking from, from like, from an economic standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. So just pure earning, I was a finance major. So I had all the charts and graphs in front of me. Yep. From a pure earning potential standpoint, I was like, oh, you might, you guys might have more money now, but over the next 60 years, I'm projected to be millions of dollars ahead of you. Millions might be an exaggeration, but we'll see how this podcast takes off. So, see, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and, and I'm the hard part about being my age and being born when I was born is that we're so cuspy. This was before you could just go and make money on the internet. This was before you got famous for having absolutely zero talent, but also being able to tell people they just need to work hard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Kim K. Yes. The career guru of all gurus. Yes. Yes. So it's like, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll go to college and I'll major in finance, which was not the right fit for me, which was another problem is I went to school for something I shouldn't have gone to school for. I knew at 10, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to go to school for journalism. I should have stuck to my guns and did that. But I've also, I've gained valuable experiences and I met my wife. So mm-hmm. all in all, hundred K in debt, but I got, I got the girl and some experiences. So I guess <laughs> it's, it's a wash. Or it's worth it. Not a wash. Oh, yeah. It's, it's worth it. <laughs> a, <laughs> I love my sister-in-law. I want that on record. Um, yeah, I think so. A lot of that sounds right to me. Um, I think that I always knew that I was going to go to college based on the school I went to. That was the expectation. Um, But I didn't. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but not quite. And I knew that, like, I didn't want to have to take general ed requirements. So I actually I went to this college that I went to, which is a women's college, um, didn't have a core curriculum. So I was. Yeah. So I went to Smith College, shout out to all the Smithies in there. Um, Yeah, so Smith College doesn't have a core curriculum. There are no, the only general education requirement is that you have to take a writing intensive course. And most 101 courses are are considered writing intensive. So I was able to take lots of Spanish classes, like my Spanish was so good at the time. Um, And I took a lot of African-American history classes and Um, the only classes that were required were the ones that were within my major. And so there were a few things that were required, um, like intro to statistics, which math, boo. Um, But I got to take things like psychology of Black Americans. I got to take um, intro to neuroscience. I got to take like a variety of things that really broadened my perspective. Um, And just based on taking things that I was interested in, I was able to meet, there was like a, a Latin, the like Latin diversification, they called it. So like at some point you'll take a, a literature class, a history class, a math class, or you know all those things, but it, no one required me to take a certain class to meet those requirements. I really was able to just take what I wanted. That's a nice model because it gave you the opportunity to explore what interested you. Absolutely. Uh, but that can be a very expensive model, which is a part of the reason that the system is so broken. Yep. Because as uh, the cost of tuition has steadily risen, mm-hmm. wages have not, mm-hmm. inflation has, it's, we're in a bad place right now. I was watching this thing the other, uh, yesterday, and they were talking about inflation. And they were basically saying from last year to this year, 
the average American got a negative 10% raise. Wow. Like things have just gone up so much. And I feel it, you know, I, so I do the majority of our grocery shopping, right? Mm-hmm. And because I take my role as culinary director for the quarter bombs, very seriously. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes. And so every Saturday I hit up Trader Joe's. Now there's five of us, three babies, but you know, they, they eat like they got jobs. And I would spend, sure do. Mm-hmm, I, I would spend on average last year, I would say $200 a trip. And that's with me being a little extra, you know, oh, I got to pick up this specialty item here. And I want to make lamb this week or whatever, but but on average about two hundred dollars. And I, I just kept noticing over the course of the last year, it was creeping up to like two fifty. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but I, but for the most part, I'm getting all the same things. You know, mm-hmm. I buy my standard three half gallons of milk, my two cartons of eggs, two bunches of bananas. So what's going on? And it's just prices have gone up so much. Absolutely. I went grocery shopping today, actually, and it was, I didn't get that much, but it was $150, where usually it's about a hundred bucks. And now lasts like two weeks. You don't even eat meat though. So what are you spending that much money on? Sticks? High quality produce. High quality produce. Thank you very much. Sticks and berries. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, I eat vegetables too. Just just not as much as you. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I did buy some meat. I bought some um, chicken sausage. The chicken and dewey sausage. Oh, I love it. From Trader Joe's? No, from Whole Foods. Oh, you oh you Whole Foods shop. You hear, that's that PhD money. You hear that? We shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> mm. Now, what did we say? I'm gonna pay for it. I'm gonna pay for groceries now, so I'm gonna pay for medical bills later. And that's the double truth, Ruth. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I you know, obviously, I not obviously, I don't think I look like it, but I spend a lot of time at the gym. And yes. In the beginning, it was half vanity, half health. Mm-hmm. Now it is 90% health, 10% vanity. Because, you know, I still, you want, you want to like what you see when you look in the mirror. And anyone who says that's not true is lying. Mm-hmm. But I think about, and we can kind of like shift the conversation here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But I think about the, the health outcomes for, for Black people. And I think about longevity. And I'm like, yo, we need to... We need to get it together. There was the, I think it was the the Eight America study done back in 2000, where this researcher, he basically mapped off America into a bunch of different segments. So it was like white, rural, male, um, urban, inner city, black male, uh, suburban, woman, like whatever, broken down all these categories. And the lowest life expectancy by far was always inner city blacks. You look at our diabetes rate, our hypertension rate, uh, uh, certain cancers, all of these different things, we are leading the way. And for so many of them, it's the product of lifestyle. Yep. It is. It's largely environmental. Absolutely. It's so environmental. Mm -hmm. And for so long, we would say, especially with something like type 2 diabetes, right? It's like, oh, it just, it runs in the family. No, it don't. Mm -hmm. Just because everybody got it don't mean it runs in the family. That's a direct product of the choices you make while at the same time, you know, we put potatoes in everything, but then we eat those potatoes on top of white rice. Uh (laughs) Like that's just culture. Yeah. So it's like, but how, how do we shift that culture to say, 
if you make the curry chicken and you put potatoes in it, you don't then need to eat it on top of white rice. And yep. what would it look like to substitute those white potatoes for sweet potatoes? Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to get mom to, I'm like, do the sweet potatoes. I'm telling you, it's, it's good. It melts right in there. So what you're hearing right now is that CJ wants to bastardize Trinidadian cuisine. (laughs) (laughs) I am trying to make us healthier. That is what I'm trying to do. All right. And so here's my my general rule of thumb, because I've changed the way that I've eaten just drastically from when we were children. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been 20 years this month since I gave up fried food, fast food, soda and candy. Really? 20 years wow which and that was just the first step in the evolution of my nutrition understanding and practices but my general rule of thumb these days Mm -hmm. is it just needs to be 80 percent as good if it's 80 percent as good as the original thing i can live with it Mm. now to get an entire people to move forward i might need to get it closer to 85 90 percent no, for Trini cuisine, it might have to be like 95%, bro. So 95% is not possible. I again, figure it out. I've Put played around with a time. lot of different things. Figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to. Do you know that brand Siete? Yes, the chips. The Mexican yeah, yeah, brand. Yeah. They got the chips, the tortillas, the salsas, yep, all yep, that stuff. Yep. Yeah. They have done what I would love to do for Trinidadian food mm. is they, they've made a healthy a significantly healthier version of all the things that you love. They're churro chips, son. They're good? Son, bomb. All right. Uh, bomb. All right, next grocery trip. I got to look. When I catch them on sale for, I think it's for $2.99 a bag, mm-hmm. I stock up. Now, <laughs> I don't need to be sitting up all night eating churro chips, but those things are, mm-hmm. those things are fire. Yeah, they are good. This, you know, Siete, if you want to pay us to do some advertising for you, feel free. Thanks. Listen, listen. Or a, life to... a lifetime supply of chips. We'll take those two. Thank you very much. Yes, we will. <laughs> Actually, yo, the other night, the other night, I think I played basketball. And after playing ball, I was like, all right, I'm either going to get something to eat or, you know what, I'm going to just go to the grocery store. I got some stuff in the house. I'll grab a few things to compliment it. Mm-hmm. I went to five different stores trying to find the CFA chips that I was looking for. <laughs> I couldn't find him. I'm like, yo, is there a shortage? What's going on? I'm trying to get my, I'm trying to get my fix right now. Yeah. So where did you end up finding them? I didn't. I had to go with some other brand that mm-hmm. was not as good and was highly disappointing. Oh man. But it's all right. Okay, yeah, they see, I think we gave you a bomb commercial right now. Run them chips. That's all we asking for. Just some chips or a sponsorship. We would prefer the sponsorship. We'll use that money to buy chips. So it's like money going right back in your pocket. Okay, great, great, great. Yeah, make sure you FedEx my chips, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what's up? What else, what's on your mind? What's what's going on? Um, what else? What else? You know what's funny? So the other day, I think it was yesterday, I was sitting and I was like journaling and I was thinking about like, um. How, well, okay, funny story. So the story that I was reminded of, um, for some reason I was like journaling about like fighting and arguing and like stress at work and stuff like that. And um, I was reflecting back and I was like, you know, of all the fights I ever had in life, all of them except for one was related to protecting you. 
And I was reminded of the time where, and so this is so, I was, yes. You talking about, 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 about physical fights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. When we were like little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was reminded of, I think it what was it, like my 30th birthday when we were at that club. <laughs> and I was about to put hands on that boy. <laughs> why that came to mind but so i'm gonna tell y'all the story so it was my 30th birthday cj and a bunch of my friends like they planned it was basically like a week's worth of events it was awesome right and so like the last night we went to this club um uh, won't in the club because they're not gonna give us any free advertising and at this point they probably don't exist anymore um so we went to this club and we're all dancing having a good time everything's great i look to the side and i see some men popping off, hands moving, blah, blah. I look to the other side and I see CJ going like staying, like tapping his hands, like his back hand is tapping his, the front of the top of the palm of his hand. And I'm just like, what is going on? And I remember I flew over there quick and took off my shoe about to bust the man in the head. I had no clue what had happened. I had no clue what had happened. And so I remember CJ had to be like, Trees, calm down. And I was like, what did he say to you? <laughs> so he was he was messing with one of your friends like exactly. kept trying to talk to her right and, and then he touched her inappropriately or something right he, he like grabbed her hand or something she's like yo i'm good and so that's when i jumped up and i was like yo fam she said she good and so mm-hmm. he jumped in my face and you know me i'm like you want war we gotta have war you that's know, right. nothing i have since calmed down i'm a much calmer man these days <laughs> but back then at the drop of a hat you know we could shoot the fair one mm-hmm. and as he and i started you and all your friends jumped between us. <laughs> he was like, yo, my bad, my bad. I didn't realize you came with the army. <laughs> I just think that was like, it's the last time I think I ever got into or almost got into anything, um, period. And also like because of you. But I was just thinking about, I was thinking of that story because it made me think about how easy it is to advocate for others. And how difficult it is to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And so um, I'm doing some, I'm doing a professional development for uh, this organization, part of my consulting work. And we're talking about like, leader, we're going to be talking about leadership development and like, how do you, cult, how do you create sort of this like forward facing identity and one that allows you to think about all the times that you fight for others put all the, that courage in a bottle and open it for yourself. So yeah, it's just that, that fight that is just so, oh man, I really took off my shoe. I was ready to bust that man in the head. I didn't even know what. On your birthday. On my birthday. On your birthday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's, what's interesting about that, because you say like, it's easier to advocate for others than it is for yourself. Mm -hmm. But then I think about all the people who just ain't advocating for nobody. Yep. You don't advocate for anybody else and you don't advocate for yourself. Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, what does that feel like? Because that, mm-hmm. that says to me that you're bottling up a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. You're burying a lot of things. And that's whether and it's for someone else or it's for yourself. Like, you, you have to process that. And you have to let that out somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, like, I think if you think about the people who aren't advocating for themselves or others, there's probably just a lot of complacency, right? Like, even if you think of people who we would define as like success-driven, money-hungry, you can't do that without advocating for yourself. 
But if you think about, but if you think about people who um, maybe stay at like a low wage job or like stay in the same position for like 30 years and they're like, yo, I've been the, I've been the loan processor or I've been the um, like administrative assistant to someone for, you know, 45 years making the same salary coming in nine to five every day, doing the same thing. Like I would imagine there's probably a lot of complacency. And I would also probably imagine that like, if we're going to think about identity development, those folks probably have just resigned themselves to one kind of life, Mm. you know? And like, we're making like generalizations and of course there's variation in all of it. Right. But, um, I would argue, just thinking about people that I've coached, um, I would argue that like um, there is a faction of people for whom they just resign themselves to, you know, to a mundane or to, you know, an ordinary life. So when I do coach people like that, it's really about getting them to dream again. Yeah, so I was, I was actually, I was talking to uh, one of my old interns today mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of catching up and I, I don't know, I said something to her about, yeah, like I'm trying to retire at 45. And she laughed. She's like, LOL, 45. I was like, no, I'm dead serious. Uh, you know, the conventional thought that we've been told is the right way to do things is work till you're 65. And, but life expectancy is 77. So you maybe get 12 good years, but at the, the way that we age and given our current health conditions and outcomes, those ain't even 12 good years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, for me, retiring at 45 is not, I'm never going to work again, but it's the work that I, I do is the work I want to do and not the work I have to do. Yep. And I am very clear-eyed and focused on that because I'm seeing so many older people retire and the bodies are broken down or they've never mm-hmm. built a life outside of work or you know they have a certain level of complacency that came from, I'm just going to work this job for 40 years and then I'll have my fun. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to wait till I'm 65. Mm-hmm. I know what this body can do. <laughs> I'm hoping it can do the same things at 45, but all science says it probably won't at 65. And I want to, I want to enjoy that. I want to be able to enjoy life. I want to, I have three, three children. Like I want to be at things. Mm-hmm. If I retire at 45, that's 15, 13, and 12. Those are prime years. Yes, they are. Those are not years that I want to spend holed up in in an office doing whatever it is my job is. Again, I will probably still work, but there should, I'm hoping to have built a certain flexibility to my life that says, you are my priority. I am here. And these other things I have going on, like I'm still going to do, like I'm going to write to the day I die, probably. That's, Mm -hmm. That's just the way I'm wired. But I can do that around, you know, just being yep. there and being present. Yeah. And I would argue, I feel like a lot of people in our generation, I think, feel that way. Like if you look at, you know, the great resignation, right? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people resigned from jobs that they hated. And they figured out like the number of small businesses has boomed exponentially in the past two years. Because people have figured out a way to work for themselves, create the lot and work towards creating the lives that they want like life just life just has to be about more than work yep. and 
like you, you spend a lot of time at work if you're working a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And if that is your life, if that is all you have or all you've built for yourself, and sure, you, maybe you have a family uh, and you have your weekend hobby. Mm-hmm. But if all you have is that Monday to Friday, because nine to five is just a saying, it's not an actual thing. So yep. that Monday to Friday, eight to eight, eight to six, eight to whatever it is you're working, there, there just has to be more. And I, I want more. Yeah. And I think that you should want more, right? I think that like, if you think about, you know, like our mom used to always say, so our mom is a a hospice nurse. And so she, we used to laughingly call her the grim reaper, because if you were dying, that means she, if she was present, that means you were dying. Um, And she would always say that when she talked to her patients, none of them ever said, I wish I worked more hours. They always said that I wish I spent more time with my family. They always said that I wish I repaired all those broken relationships or they literally would like lay in torment about the the mean or hurtful things that they had done to others. And they essentially were just miserable. You know, she said that like her clients who, or patients rather, who had um, healthy, healthy families, whole relationships, you know, had lived these exploratory lives. They were in a much more peaceful state as they were passing. So that has always stuck with me, always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. That's probably why we are both uh, inclined when we are in a working environment that is less than ideal to be like, I don't got to deal with this. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but like, life, is, life is too short. You know, it's it funny. Is. I've been, so I've officially been unemployed for a year and a half, mm-hmm. which I've been working since I was 15. And the longest before this is four months. Last week was the first time, because even as much as I believe this, and as much as it's my aim and my goal, I still get caught up in that same mindset of, no, I need to be working. Like, I do need to work, like, obviously, because we need money in this world. But having work be your identity. And last week or two weeks ago was the first time in this year and a half that I said, yo, I'm good. I'm comfortable with where I am. I was at the park with the kids. I've got number three in the stroller and I'm pushing one and two on the swing and it was just just kind of hit me in a flash I was like I like this I'm okay I'm this is a memory that I'm going to cherish and have more than anything I do at in any office absolutely that's why I always consult so I've always had like more than one job um and it's consulting I think really is the place where I um, feel the most fulfilled fulfillment. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you can't be in public service loan forgiveness program and be a consultant because you have to basically sign yourself off to being poor to be in that program. So, but something really is like, that's where I find my identity. That's where I find my joy. That's where I'm most creative. Um, and it's flexible. I could literally, when I was doing consulting full-time, I could work 20 hours a week and make what would I, what I would have made, like working full-time, like half the time, the same amount of money. Like it was exciting. I always say that, like, I'm going to give, you know, districts, state work, like this traditional education work. I'm going to give it till I'm 50. And then at 50, I'm out, I'm going to be a full-time consultant. And I'm going to basically like dedicate my life to one traveling around the world. I need to get back to that. Um, And then also just like, helping people, helping the people that I want to help 
doing the work that I want to do, creating with the people that I want to create with. So, you know, and it's possible. I think that like, I was talking to a friend and we were saying that we have so much hope for the generation behind us that's coming after us because these younger millennials and Gen Zers, listen, you can't tell them they got to sit in the office from nine to five. You can't tell them they got to stay late. You can't tell them nothing. And I'm here for it. I'm in full support of it. And then Same. a friend, of, right? Like they're like, listen, this is what I'm good at. I can offer this to you. Like they know how to say, I can offer this to you. And like slavery ended in 1865, bro. We ain't doing this again, right? Like you gonna respect me. So it's funny because a friend of mine, we were talking about that, and she said, "But Sharice, yo, we're the we're gonna be their managers. So actually, they should be thanking God for us because we are the ones who are the first to say, yo, this ain't working for us. We're out." And we have enough proof points to say that like you can live a full and fulfilling life in the way that you want to do so. So I was like, well, shoot, they should be thanking God for us then. High five to us. In my <laughs> second to last job, I was supremely flexible. I it's I essentially, it's not that I made my own schedule. It's just my bosses were in another city and I could work from anywhere. So I was in the office two, maybe three days a week. And the rest of the time, I was just all over the city doing things. And my last job, they were very strict about that nine to five, be in the office all day, every day. You can't work remotely. And at the end of my first week, I had said to somebody, I was like, yo, y'all do this every day? Y'all come here <laughs> all the time? Yo, what's wrong? <laughs> And so I ended up actually instituting a policy pre-Panini pre when everyone had to work remotely. Mm -hmm. I was like, yo, every, everybody gets, I think it was like one day a week to work remotely. Mm. It's, it's just from the overwhelming majority of jobs, uh, and these, these are the thought jobs, right? Yep. The overwhelming majority of the thought jobs, you do not need to be tied down in one Agreed. location. Absolutely. You're paying me for what I can do and what I know, not for where I am. And yep. I think a good manager will recognize I'm paying you for results. And that means that it, the onus is on me to give you clear metrics that you are going to be measured by. That's right. So everyone who's ever worked for me will tell you, my philosophy is, you know what you need to do? Go ahead and do it. If you need my help, I'm here for you. I'm That's not babysitting you. Mine as well. Yeah. Back. Mm -hmm. I don't care when you do it, but when I contact you, if I need to talk to you during you know, normal business hours, be available. But if you want to be up until 3 a.m., that's, mm -hmm. that's your business. Yep, absolutely. And I manage the same way. So my team, they're like, oh, I'm not feeling well today. I was like, do you need to be out, out? Or you just, you need a different location? You know, so, and they'll say like, they were the team that I'm managing now, they were shocked. They were like, oh yeah, okay, great. Yeah, we can like, go ahead, you know, like, and I think that like, if the past two years have taught us anything, it has demonstrated for us just how many thought jobs can be done remotely. Mm -hmm. You know, problem we is resigned it to certain down. sectors, right? The problem is the trickle down though. So mm -hmm. here in New York, there's a big push for a lot of the jobs that are in Midtown to go back to the office because the businesses in that area were so reliant on people, on the tens of thousands of people who work into that area to work. So right. I, I understand the trickle down, but I think we're, we're going to have to find some sort of compromise and adjustment. Yeah, I totally agree. I can tell you now, whenever I go back to work, 
it is not going to be in some office nine to five every single day shackled to my desk. I just, I don't thrive in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so it's got to be a really great job to get me to be like, all right, I want to do that again. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of um, organizations, I mean, even, you know, a number of school districts, like they have now had to figure out work from home policies, right? Especially the larger ones, smaller ones, you know, not so much, but the larger ones, like they've had to figure it out. And I think that what's, what was great about that, when I'm just thinking about some large districts, they were bursting at the seams anyway. They had people sitting at sharing desks and rotating and people were in the fields. Anyway, they weren't sitting, they weren't using space that was available. So it really just get, came to light. Like, look, oh, actually you can do it from anywhere. And it's actually relieving some pressure on the operational aspects of running a school district. Yeah, I mean, it's just, and so many times it's just more efficient. Mm-hmm. But as we get ready to land the plane here, mm-hmm. I want you to tell tell the people about Connecting Forward. Yeah. So Connecting Forward, it is a boutique consulting firm that I founded um, while I was getting my doctorate three years ago. And we provide executive coaching. So if you are an entrepreneur, if you are anywhere from an entry-level manager to a CEO, Um, We provide comprehensive executive coaching. We also provide um, culture building facilitation, strategic planning, and then uh, we also do professional development. So if you're in the education sector and you want training on how to incorporate um, or how to do social emotional learning from an equity lens, I'm your woman for that. If you want something around you know, how to manage adult culture, how to produce positive adult culture. I'm your person for that. Um, Also do a lot of work in innovation and we just essentially help school districts, singular schools and education nonprofits improve on what they do. Look at you, you're so smart. I know, and that's my side hustle, yo. It's not even my day (laughs) job. Where can people find out more about Connecting Forward? Sure. So you can go to our website at www.connectingforward.com or you could email me at Sharice at Connecting Forward. And that's Sharice spelled like the dancer, C-H-A-R-I-S-S-E. So there's no I-C-E, there's no one S. It doesn't start with an S, it starts with a C. Um, Or, you know, you could always reach out to the host of this beloved podcast and and he'll pass your message along. Do you want people to follow you on the socials? Yeah, I guess they should do that. Follow me on Twitter at Sheree Speaks. All right. What about Instagram? No, that's private. I, I respect it. Word, respect word. it. I, that's bound, uh, right? That's part of leadership development. You got to have boundaries. Yeah. All right. What's one embarrassing story that you would like to tell about the beloved host of this podcast? One embarrassing story? Oh, you should have prepped me for that. This this may or may not make it, so we'll see. <laughs> how embarrassing it is. Oh, one embarrassing story. I don't know. Oh well, and that's our time, <laughs> folks. <laughs> Yo, this is a setup. All right, if I'm ever on this again, I'm coming prepared with a list. Chill, chill, chill. <laughs> Thank you for joining the kickback. Uh, I'm sure we're gonna end recording and then talk for another six hours. But as we always do, that's all the people get to hear tonight. Appreciate you, beloved. Love you too. 
Good night, everyone. Kicking in with the homie. Kicking in with the homie. Kicking in with the homie. Oh, 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 oh,